0: The middle of chapter 11 is at least the middle, if not two thirds of the way through one of Paul's arguments. He has been arguing that God has not forsaken ethnic Israel. So, though on the surface and according to every circumstance of the day, that when the Messiah was proclaimed, that in mass they rejected that Messiah, that God has not finished with them and that's not the end of their plan. The thing that we said last week was essentially that at a certain point it would have been said, that being born into Israel or confessing uh, to be a confessing Jew would have been the only door to communion with God. And what it seems like now is that that's the one door that seems locked off or closed to communion with God, and Paul is reflecting on this. And so as we continue to work our way through the 11th chapter, he is going to reflect on and give us some handles to consider this big topic. What is God's plan for His people? That's what we're looking at. I'm going to begin reading in the 11th verse of Romans chapter 11. I'm going to go down to the 24th verse, and then we'll pause together. Paul writes this, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you." you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I know we've prayed often this morning, one after the next, but I believe that God is with us, He hears us, and I want to be as specific as possible. So I'm going to be specific here in a moment as we pray. I want to specifically understand these words. I want to specifically live out in, a, in an experience and in the faithfulness of this particular morning our confession and that is, that this is a living word, that it can cut, it can separate. And that this would transform us. So let's pray that that's what happens. God, we're gathered. We've read. And we have a shared identity in Christ. One that comes with particular confessions. And our statement, our belief here this morning is that these words are yours. And because they are yours, they are true. And they are powerful. They are life-giving. And so I ask that none of our doubt or distractions or the difficulties of this world would make us miss what you have for us. So Spirit of God, speak. We are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting, this section of Romans chapter 11 is about jealousy. And jealousy is a very interesting human emotion. Jealousy, for the most part, most often, is a negative thing. If you are experiencing jealousy, something has gone wrong, or you are certainly not feeling great. No one says, You know what I want tomorrow? I want a huge fit of jealousy. I've just been feeling content. I feel like my place in the world's okay. What if tomorrow I was just raging mad about something I didn't have? When I saw someone else did have it, and yet Paul says in many ways that that's what this theme is about. In order to get at, to get under the explanation for what's happening with Israel, we're going to have to deal with this idea of jealousy, and we'll get there in a minute because it's at the core of what I'm going to say is an an offer of an explanation. If I broke down this section, these verses that we just read, I'm going to hang a few things on these categories. The first is I'm going to say that Paul by nature of really the entire argument, he offers an explanation. So that's one category, an offered explanation. Then we're going to look at a hope for the future. So his explanation includes a vision forward to the future, and we want to say, well, what is that hope for the future? And then finally, he's going to give, and I think that it becomes the takeaway for us, and it doesn't even have to be surmised. He says it directly. There is a word of warning. So we have an offered explanation, a hope for the future, and then a word of warning. And those are the categories that we're going to look at this morning. Here's what Paul says as a word of explanation. He says, did they stumble? That's the question at the start. Did they stumble that they might fall? And then he explains, no, by no means did they stumble in order that they might fall. In other words, he he says, was there a simple reason? Was the point of the Jews missing the Messiah simply that they would be punished? Is that what took place? By no means. He goes back to his, one of his favorite phrases in Romans. By no means. No way. And then he's going to give this explanation for what has taken place. And at the heart of it, he uses it twice in this passage, once in verse 11 and then verse 14 as well. At the heart of it is this idea of jealousy, of something received or something taken upon oneself because of another person lacking it. That's the story. I can only remember one instance where I realized that I was jealous. I've told this story before, but the, the only reason that I am married to my wife right now is I believe because I discovered in myself Jealousy. And it was an odd kind of discovery. We had gone back to our respective states. I'm in North Dakota. She's in Louisiana. We start talking on the phone a little bit. We were broken up. I had no idea where the future was going. I just thought, well, she's my best friend, but it's probably going to stay there. And then she began to describe going to a movie and dinner the night before. And as far as I knew before it happened, it was with friends, what she said. Except the more she talked about it, I realized it was with friend. The S had miraculously disappeared. It was just gone. And she didn't make it a big deal about it, but she told me, well, you know, no, no, it was going to be with friends, and then, and then they couldn't come, and they canceled or something, so it ended up just me being, and then it was like, well, what's the name? And oh, it's the name, oh, you mean the same name of the guy who professed his love to you three years ago? That guy? What serendipity for him that everyone else canceled? Oh, how did you get there? Well, I mean, he had to pick me up. He had to pick me up to bring me to the, the thing. Well, did you bring a bunch of your money or did he have money? Well, he was going to pay. I mean, he had to pay for the thing. And so I found myself just, just like kind of just really angry and kind of screaming and trying to like position the argument, you know, position it logically like, well, so you went on a date? No, I didn't go on a date. Oh, you went on a date. Have you heard? Like, let's look at Webster's, right? Or what is, what is happening here? And I got off the phone. And I remember feeling two things distinctly. One, guilt. I thought, why would you make her feel that way? What right do you have? Like, you should have just said, oh, cool. Did you want it to be a date? We're friends. Because that's what I kept saying, we're friends. So I felt a little guilty. And then, second, I just started thinking to myself, you, you silly jerk, you're jealous. You're jealous. You're actually jealous. Like, the only reason you're so determined to figure out the meaning of this date is because you wish you were on the date. There was something received, something happening, and you thought to yourself, no, 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 I can't lose that. I need that. And so the very next morning, I called and said, hey, we should date. What do you think about that? And then she's godly and much more wise than me, so she said, "Eh, I'll think and pray about it for a while. I'll talk to you in a bit. And then you guys know the rest of the story. She said yes. We've been married for 20 years. So jealousy is an odd emotion. Jealousy is the kind of thing that stirs up in someone when they finally see the beauty or the value of something that they've been missing out on. And what Paul comes to believe, and what he says to us as an offering of explanation, is that this kind of thing is what is taking place around him. It's what he's banking on. And this explanation that he offers, his offered explanation, really has two different stages. Stage one is that the stumbling of the Jewish people opens the door of opportunity for the Gentiles. Let's call this Louisiana date guy, right? That's the opportunity. The doors open. And what he says is is that their trespass, through their trespass, verse 11 says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So that's stage one. Before we ever get to the jealousy, he's acknowledging and has said essentially, you know, that whole thing that I gloried in for 11 chapters up to this point about the gospel being to all the nations everywhere? That fact has happened as an opportunity because of this stumbling. So that's stage one. The stumbling brings about the opportunity for the Gentiles. And this has been clear in his teaching. This isn't the first time that Paul says this kind of thing. It might be the first time that he's organizing in this way, but he has certainly said similar things throughout his whole ministry. He calls himself, he says, I have a magnified, he wants to magnify his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. I'm going to show you a few places in the book of Acts where Paul has been consistent in this idea. He knows that the rejection of the Jews means an opportunity for the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13, verse 46. He says this upon feeling resistance from the synagogues and from the temples and from the Jewish people around. It says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This idea of being a witness for Jesus in Jerusalem first, and then finally out to the end of the earth. That that progression is what Paul's acknowledging here. He says, the word of God was spoken to you first, but it was in your rejection that we have turned and pressed outward. One more example, Acts chapter 18. I'm going to have just verse 6 on the screen. You could look back in verse 5 for evidence that they go to the synagogues and it's the Jewish people that they're reasoning with. Paul's spending all of his time, he's trying to, when he goes to a new place, reason with the Jews. They reject, and then verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, that is an interesting result. Can you imagine like the Navs are sharing the gospel on on campus? They get rejected. They take their shirt off. They're just like shaking it. Well, the blood's on your hands. I mean, that's an aggressive evangelism policy, but Paul was seeing something here. He saw that there was a pattern of rejection of the Messiah from the Jewish people and that he was being called as a result to the Gentiles. Now, this is interesting. Some have surmised or commented on this that perhaps it was a part of God's plan to have, to have the, like a, a stream of water. Imagine a stream of water coming out of a hose and there's a big rock that you run into and it scatters it everywhere. Some believe that what Paul is saying is that God wanted to protect and guard against the idea that if the Messiah had come as a, as a shoot through Israel, Jesus born a Jew in the line of David with all the lineage and if He had come and they had been accepted wholesale completely by the Jews that perhaps there would have been the temptation to believe that this was only a Jewish thing. Oh, there God goes again, choosing His people again, separating His people again, but instead this the shoot of, of water coming out of the sows meets an immovable, hardened rock and therefore spreads and splashes out to the rest of the world. It's an interesting idea, an interesting picture. And Paul seems to believe it. He says, no, here's what happened. It was their stumbling, their trespass, their sin, their rejection, their reviling that led me to offer the gospel more widely and for us to rejoice in the wonder of what took place next. Because what takes place next is that scores of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will rush in. So the gospel has been given an opportunity and a hearing among the Gentiles, in part because of Israel's rejection. That's the first part of this argument. That's the first part of the explanation. And in fact, he said this earlier to realize that this opportunity makes now a level ground And a level hearing for the person of Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verse 12, he said this, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. There's that phrase, his riches on all who call on him. He just said their trespass, in verse 12 of chapter 11, it was their trespass that meant riches for the world, and their failure that meant riches for the Gentiles. So all who call on him, Get the riches of Christ. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's the first part. That was the opportunity given. His explanation is there was an opportunity because of the hardness of Israel. But secondarily, he says, here's what he believes is happening. There will now be a jealousy. There will be a kind of stirred jealousy in the hearts of the Jews. I mentioned it earlier, but twice he says that salvation of the Gentiles will make Israel Jealous. He says later. In fact, he magnifies his ministry so that he might somehow. Now I appreciate words like that. There's a humility in Paul. I like. I like ministry that starts with or has a little bit of somehow in there. Well, how's this going to happen? Some somehow. I, I I live like this sometimes. He doesn't know how exactly. There's one thing to keep be careful about. He's not offering a handbook. He's not saying, here are the 13 steps to the Jewish people coming and this is the day it's going to happen and what it's going to look like exactly. I don't know if he knows, but he says, somehow what I want to do is for them to be jealous. It's interesting. A vision of trying to catch the attention of someone that you love by withholding from them or parading the goodness of something in front of them that's that's this idea normally it's a romantic kind of situation but here he's applying it to the greatest of needs for the Jews they need salvation they need the beauty of Jesus they need his righteousness and he wants them to see what the gentiles are receiving so that they would be saved the question becomes where does this jealousy lead and it's the second part of this explanation. He says the stumbling of Israel is two things. It's an opportunity for the riches of Christ to be given to the Gentiles. And second, that there would be jealousy because he has a hope for their future. I said that there was going to be a category of hope for the future. And the most brilliant thing about Romans 11 is that despite the honesty with which he, he deals with the Jews, he says they have a spirit of stupor. They have eyes that can't see. They've stumbled. They've failed. I mean, think of every word. He basically just goes through the thesaurus and says, what are words for failed? And he he applies them. He's honest about Israel, but he's hopeful. He's honest, but he's hopeful because this jealousy, he said, I believe is going to stir something beautiful. And so here is some of the way that he deals with the future. He says that in the future, he can imagine, in his mind's eye, he can imagine what he calls a full inclusion at the end of verse 12. Now, this has been subject to much speculation. What does this mean, full inclusion? inclusion. Twice he's going to use words like how much more. That's right before that in verse 12. Later down in verse 24. How much more, he says, will whatever's been offered up to this point be multiplied because of the Jewish people rushing in? When Paul thinks of the Jewish people, despite the fact that they'd rejected the Messiah up to this point, he does not despair. He thinks things like this. How much more will their inclusion be? bring riches to the world. This is a hopeful vision of the future. Now you might say, I came to church this morning and I've been curious about Romans 11, and I was hoping that you, pastor, could tell me exactly when this is going to happen and how many Jewish people are going to be saved, and does this mean literally? And what I would say to you is, I'm sorry. I don't know. It's why I bank on words like somehow. He says that somehow they'll be jealous, 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 Somehow they will. And there have been people who have said, well, what kind of future could this be? There are some who would stand on and they believe that the promise of the Old Testament may be quite literally for land or quite literally for the lineage of Abraham, that no, there will be one day a literal inclusion of Israel. That there would be such a mass conversion of Jewish people at one day in the future that it would be obvious that the promises are coming True. And that it will essentially usher in the end of all things. Now, I did not get to the end of the Left Behind series. Is that in there? I don't know what they believe or what they say. I know you're checking it against your sources. So whatever that would mean, I'm not sure exactly, but there are people who are banking on that. So just imagine, the nation of Israel, maybe the land that's there, these people who have rejected it, they just en masse begin a revival and come back to their God, to their Messiah, Other people say, well, no, this could be a spiritual grafting back in, a spiritual inclusion. The idea being that there may be more of them, but eventually what we're going to see is that there will be an inclusion by faith for all who turn to Jesus. And that eventually, God, of course, will not lose any of His own, so all of His people will finally and ultimately be His. I wish that I could tell you I know exactly how this is going to happen. Here's how I fit it neatly into Revelation or into the Old Testament promises. And I would say to you that I'm just not sure, and I'm going to take Paul's stance in this and say that somehow, somehow I believe that God is not done with Israel, And that the increasing and expanding worship of Jesus across the world that has continued down to this very day will ultimately result in God's purpose for his people being fulfilled in a beautiful, gracious way. And this is something to look forward to. I think that what he would say here, and John Stott, if you've never read a John Stott commentary, has been amazingly helpful through Romans And he put a couple phrases on here, one that I think will put a little pin on this second category, and then the second that will introduce us to the third category. He essentially says this, that Paul's settled idea of the future for Israel is that because of God's ability, because of his power, he says in verse 23 that he has the power to graft them back in again. Because of God's power, that there is no room for despair that when it comes to the future of Israel, there is no room for despair. And that's the way that he he leaves it. And I think that's a helpful word from Stott. Again, if you have not picked up a commentary for a book of the Bible before, or maybe not for Romans, I would really recommend Stott's on Romans. He's brilliant. There's some techie kind of stuff in there, but it's not overly, you know what I mean? Have you ever tried to read a commentary and it just gets too technical? You say to yourself, this thing's so smart, it's dumb. You ever, you know what I mean? Some books get like that. Stott avoids that nearly universally, which is good. So the idea about the future, here's how he imagines the future. It's a hopeful future. He says, despite all of their hardness of heart, there is no room for despair. But finally, I said that there would be a third category, and that is by contrast, if, Stott mentions, there's no room for despair, for despair there is also, and perhaps most pointedly for us, there is no room for boasting there is no room for boasting. And that is where we get this word of warning. This middle section of Romans 11 is ultimately a word of warning. I appreciate that verse 13 is so direct. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. I'm speaking to you. And maybe no one has called you this in a while, but my guess is that you are likely a Gentile. You are someone who was not born ethnically in the family of God through the line of Abraham, and so therefore you have been grafted in due to faith. And he says, I'm speaking to you, those of you who are in the family of God by the grace of God through faith. Let's talk for a minute. And the word of warning comes that in the moment of us talking through this and thinking about it, in fact, we spent a number of weeks now considering the future the past and maybe what's going on right now in the present with this nation. And he says, here's going to be a temptation that I want you to be careful about. Do not boast. Do not be proud. That there's a possibility we could miss the lesson of Israel altogether. How is it that they were cut off? How is it that they who had all of the law and all the prophets All the privileges, that's how he begins Romans chapter 9. He says, these are my people, my kinsmen. They had, and then he lists all their benefits. How is it they had all the benefits, but now they are cut off? Well, I imagine he would say, pride is a terrible thing. And so he says, I'm speaking to you to remember not only the hopeful future for Israel, But he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches in verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. So one of the first rules or the first takeaways from this, how do we be fruitful as a part of this tree? The first thing is to kill pride at every turn. Pride is an insidious, spreading, dangerous, Often, it's like the poison. What's the princess bride? You know the poison that the guy makes up a, a, an immunity to? I don't even know what it's called. I had cane, something? Wow. I got more in my eight year old brain than I could remember. Whatever it is. He, he makes up an immunity, you know? But here's the, here's the thing. I think that in a lot of ways that pride can kind of be like that. Many of us, be, we don't realize it, but we are living with it so long that we have a kind of immunity to it. Like, we, we don't even see it. We don't smell it. Maybe I'm mixing metaphors here. Maybe I just wanted to talk about Princess Bride. I don't know. But the point would be this. Pride is the kind of thing that very few of us ever say, oh, man, I'm proud as the day is long. God help me. My guess is, though, is that we often could imagine pride and we become attuned to it when someone else is proud toward us. And so I would remind you, the consistent message of Scripture is the danger and the ongoing reality of pride and what it can do to a person's soul. It can take them to a place where they begin to believe Their own propaganda about what they deserve and what they're owed and how they got to where they are. And that kind of pride, if you allow it to happen for long enough, will put you in a dangerous position of being cut off, just as Israel was. Now you might say, no, 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 this whole cutting off thing, that happens in the Old Testament when when God was a little more cranky. And I just want to remind you that Jesus has just as stern warnings. John chapter 15, verse 2. This idea of branches, this illustration, and them being taken away is not just an Old Testament thing for Israel. John chapter 15, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This big illustration of the olive tree is given here to describe the way that Israel, God's people by ethnicity could have been broken off and then Gentiles brought in, but he wants to remind them that this is all due to the work of the gardener. I had a, a funny vision of what pride says instead. So the picture that he's giving in an olive tree is all over the Bible. It's a, a settled description of the nation of Israel. It was one of, their, one of their sort of symbols of who they were. It's a sturdy tree, in fact, almost impossible to kill unless you really get down to the bottom of it and pull it up. And he's imagining these moments where these olive trees would have been cut off intentionally. And what would happen most often is you'd find an old olive tree that was sturdy to the point where you couldn't kill it if you'd tried. And the life inside of that tree, sometimes though there was a ton of life there, there was no fruit. And so a good gardener or someone in the midst of his vineyard or something would go over there and they would find a way to graft in a fruitful bough of a different tree that would bear fruit. And then the, those together, the life of those things together would bear much fruit. And I'm thinking of this picture, the kind of intentionality, the kind of identification that it needs. This is tree with a gardener coming and doing specific things for specific reasons. And it's as though pride often says, well, there I was, a fruitless tree branch on a tree. And I looked over and I saw a fruitful tree and I thought to myself, I need to get over there. So I began to shake myself off the tree. And I shook and shook and shook. And finally, I broke off and hit the ground. And then somehow I imagined, waiting for gusts of wind or something, I waddled my way over and grafted myself in. Now do you see how stupid this illustration is? And what Paul's trying to say is, look, there is a gardener here, a grafter here, and if you're in this tree, it is, by very, very, it is very much by grace and no other reason. And don't believe that just because you're in the tree now that you will be maintained If you don't bear fruit, do not be arrogant toward the other branches. Remember, it is the root of the existing tree that supports you. So kill pride, he says in verse 18. A second thing that helps us, maybe a list of things. How do we heed this word of warning? The first thing he says is kill pride. Second thing is remember. Remember that it is not you who support the root. Remembering is a wonderful, wonderful spiritual practice. It is an insulation and an insurance against the worst maladies of soul. To consistently and actively remember is to insulate yourself with God's goodness. And he says to them, remember, kill pride and then remember. And if you do this consistently, it will help you to stay a part of the tree he finally says another category of things that we can, we can do that would be helpful in insulating ourselves against being lost is to note. I like that word in verse 22. I think otherwise, other places of the Bible, they might have used the word meditate or think on these things. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, in, in, in the Psalms where it says, say law over and over. This is a moment of pause to think on these things. He says in verse 22, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. We should pause and we should consider what God is like. We should consider that though we are grafted in and are the recipient of great promises, that he ultimately and still and ever will remain the gardener. That it is his prerogative and by his grace that any of us stand. In fact, he he flips this olive tree metaphor on its head. He's going to end it with this hopeful vision of Israel by saying, you know that this is actually backward. You were a wild olive tree. Remember I said that before, the thing that happened normally is a wild olive tree with its life and its roots in the ground. They would take a cultivated one and put it in there. And what Paul says is, no, 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 you were worse than that. Don't get proud toward Israel. They're the cultivated branch. You were a wild tree that was cut off from the wild and God somehow, as a master gardener, was able to, am I using gardener or an arborist or whatever you'd call it? As a master arborist, he was able to shove the wild onto the cultivated and It worked. And it's that same metaphor that flips, and he says why it's going to be so powerful or so easy for God by His power to put cultivated back onto cultivated. But nonetheless, the command here seems to be, if I could summarize kill pride, remember, and note, if we're supposed to note the severity of God, the kindness of God, I think ultimately at the end of all this, The summary statement here is that we should be those who are properly fearing God. We should live with a proper fear of God, a proper reverence for the idea that we are here by faith and faith is a gift. Proverbs 28 verse 14 says this very succinctly. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. There can be a kind of casual nature with which we treat our presence in God's family. And he says, do not do this, but fear The question for us to remember and the thing to hold on to at the end of all of this is that God does not love us and God does not receive us and we've not been grafted in because we're so impressive. We've been grafted in because God is merciful and He can do the unthinkable. He can take a wild olive shoot and make it fruitful in a cultivated one. And we should realize that it is not guaranteed in our own power that tomorrow we are here. I think one sign of Christian maturity is to realize that each and every year you remain a Christian is more and more a wonder. You ever thought about all of the different moments when you could have been broken off? Like a tree dangling over a house somewhere that goes through seven hurricanes and you think, oh my goodness, how is that thing still standing? I think sometimes for many of us it would be helpful for us to note the kindness and severity of God and say, wow God, I'm still standing. You ever thought about all the moments of doubt? all the patterns of sin, all the confusion, all the potential disillusionment, the despair, the anger toward other Christians who aren't doing what you thought they should be doing. We are held in God's hand and utterly dependent on His grace. And each and every day that we persist is a gift from Him. This is to remember that it is not the proud and the together. It is not the strong that God looks on with kindness, but those who are continually aware of their weakness. Those who remember the condition of their own hearts. I want to close with a, a verse that is amazingly powerful from Isaiah chapter 66. It's a good reminder. I think it's in the spirit of Romans 11 on how we can avoid pride and remember and note. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says this, all these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be and I might put in though I don't know if Isaiah he couldn't have imagined these things perhaps. I might say all these things the influx of the Gentiles and all these things came to be the grafting of wild olive shoots into cultivated ones All of these things from his hand, declares the Lord. And then he gives this promise, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, someone who understands how they got where they are. Someone who is not delusional about their own strength or their own power or their own ability to hold on. Someone who consistently receives and rejoices in the mercy of God for forgiveness of sins. And ultimately, ultimately, someone who is intimate with God, who who experiences and knows that they're present with Him, but never treats Him casually. Who remembers that though we've been taught to... to pray to our Father. He is our Heavenly Father. He remains in heaven. He remains beyond us. He remains with a prerogative and a plan and a purpose that is hidden from us. So, let us not study Israel with proud, arrogant, hardened hearts. Let's not use this as an object lesson of some of those other people and how wrong they could be. But instead say to ourselves, God help me, give me grace so that we don't end up hardened like that.